on this episode, we're talking about new drug approvals, and then we're going through our very first patient case. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me is Cole Swanson. How's everyone doing this week? Cole, how's your week going? It's going well, man. Excited for another installment of Core Console RX podcast. Yes, it's a real uh, coming of age tale. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to do things. We got a couple new, I guess, segments for you guys. Uh, for one, since we're so close to the end of the month, uh, we're going to kind of recap on some of the new drugs that have come out and had uh, FDA approval this month, just to make sure that uh, everyone's aware of some of these new drugs. And then um, the other thing we're going to do is we're actually going to come up, like discuss a patient case and, and actually go through the case and then kind of go with some of our recommendations and then we will upload the PDF file of the of the case to the website and um, coreconsolerx.com so you can get a copy of that if you want to kind of follow along. So if you do want to do that, go ahead and pause the podcast and then go download it and come back. And uh, hopefully if this kind of works out well, we're, we came up with this literally an hour ago. So if this uh, works well, we are going to try to do this more often and we'll have more elaborate cases and things like that. But... This is trial run mm-hmm. one, so yeah. we'll see how it goes. And if you want to go straight to it, probably coreconsultrx.com slash podcasts will bring you there. And uh, look for this one, click on it, and uh, let's get rolling. Sounds good. So what's the uh, what's the what's what's your favorite drug that got approved this month? Uh, if I had to choose one, I'd probably say Ozempic, one of the first ones of the month. Yeah, I agree. Semaglutide. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, it's Nova Nordisk's once weekly GLP one, and it actually was compared directly to uh, Trulicity uh, Dilaglutide, which for a while there was the only one of the once weeklies that met non inferiority as far as A one C lowering when compared to Victoza, which is the market leader. So this one's been compared. It's actually a little bit better than. Uh, Trulicity, I think it was the Sustain 7 trial. Mm-hmm. And so this is definitely a very, very good option. It's got strong weight lowering. Uh, we already have cardiovascular data with it from Sustain 6, Sustain 5, yeah. one, one of those. Yeah. Um, but it does have a cardiovascular uh, benefit to it as well. I think it was superior in that composite of non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and um, cardiovascular death where Trulicity's got what the rewind trials mm-hmm. coming yeah, out rewinds coming out next which year i don't think look as promising as um as ozempic so we'll yeah. see and the others you know they've kind of been not so not so great they've tandem yeah tandem yeah. harmony outcomes and then there was uh the excelsior with i think it was called with uh extended uh, extended release so those have kind of showed that there's no cardiovascular risk but there's no benefit either so uh victoza in ozempic are probably going to be the two go-tos and then maybe Trulicity is a as a secondary but mm. uh, i'll tell you what nobody nordisk knows how to do some glp they're doing it all right yeah <laughs> they're doing it all right over there you think uh i think it's going to be covered at all in the new year ozempic uh, i think it'll take a little bit like always but yeah, me too. i you know we'll see and i mean there's still some insurance companies that prefer by durian mm-hmm. and i just i don't understand that yeah but 
the some people some still prefer tanzium i think until yeah, like it's july when, yeah, when you're just not gonna market. be able to get yeah <laughs> but uh yeah I, I don't you know the, the insurance companies are always a couple years behind the actual science so we'll see what happens yeah uh what else do we have uh so there was also a new cream called zepi ozonoxacin that was from metametrics sometime early on in the month used to treat impetigo so that's another new one that came out yeah, that's the uh, non-fluorinated quinolone. Yes. Um, and it has uh, coverage against Staph aureus and Strep pyrogenes. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool. Different than those fluoroquinolones, I suppose. Yeah, get that fluorine out of here. <laughs> so uh, another one is the follow-on to insulin Lispro. Um, it was uh, Admilog. That was the the name of it. So hopefully this will be another cheaper version of of uh, Humalog. So the follow-on, so it's not quite a biosimilar. We can't call it a biosimilar in this country. I think other countries will still lump insulins in with biosimilars, but uh, this is a, they term it a follow-on and it's, so it's not a true generic, but it is considered equivalently effective compared to the Humalog. So it's going to kind of act like the generic in practice in a way? Yeah, kind of. Kind of like uh, Basiglard is doing with Lantus. Yeah. So um, hopefully this is another option to for patients to bring prices down a little bit that are out of control on insulins. Yeah, we also got uh, macrolin, macamorolin maybe, massamorolin acetate. Uh, it was approved on the 20th by Aterna Zentaris Pharmaceuticals, which I think is an awesome pharmaceutical name. <laughs> um, but it was, it was approved for um, diagnosis of adult growth hormone deficiency. So it would help with that. Very cool. Uh, also, uh, Exifi is another, uh, this time it is a considered a biosimilar um, to Remicade. This is their third biosimilar, I think, that's been on the market. I did a, uh, a flash briefing on this one. I think the flash briefing is available on SoundCloud as well and iTunes. Um, just a quick recap, but one of the things just to mention with this is if you are unsure whether or not something is actually considered a biosimilar, make sure you look at the uh, FDA's purple book is their reference. Mm-hmm. So like whereas orange book would compare generics and brands, the purple book is made specifically for biosimilars. Awesome. Yeah. Also, uh, Repreza, Natarsidil, I'm getting all the fun ones to pronounce, um, <laughs> approved by Airy on December 18th to treat glaucoma and ocular hypertension. So that's going to be another eye drop used to help with that. Yeah, and then one's the uh, Rho kinase inhibitor, um, specifically for uh, open angle glaucoma or uh, ocular hypertension. So what else do we have? We have, let's see, Stiglertro ergoglyphosin is the new uh, SGLT2 inhibitor mm-hmm. on the market this month. So what so, do you think of that one? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I still... I know they're they're what's the trial that they're doing for the, they're looking at cardiovascular data. It's called Vertis V E R T I S cardiovascular study. So you know we'll see what happens when when that comes out. I I haven't seen any head to head trials with any of the other SGLT twos. Yeah. I wish they would like GLP ones did such a good job with comparing them. I guess depending on who you ask, right. the companies probably weren't happy, but <laughs> um, they did such a good job with comparing them and giving you head to head data. We don't really have that with. The SGLT2, so we kind of have to go based on side effects and stuff like cardiovascular data. So I still lean more with, if I'm going to use one of these, still move more uh, with Jardians. 
Right. And they did some um, meta analyses looking at the original three, but I took issue. It pretty much said that, that you can assume that the cardiovascular um, safety or efficacy is kind of a class-wide effect. I took issue with some of the, the things in the tri- or in the study, but we can post that um, on the website. But yeah, other than that, there hasn't been anything randomized. Um, so I'd like to see more with those. Uh, definitely. Some people I know are, are worried now that uh, Invocana or um, Canaglifosin uh, says that uh, there's an increased risk in amputations. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that they've officially seen that as a class effect. Uh, so, But that is something that, to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, some of the ones we we assume are would be what fractures potentially and mm-hmm. um and gender urinary infections. Yeah, big and, things um, to look out for. And uh, ketoacidosis. Yeah, as diabetic well. it's ketoacidosis. Not, it doesn't stem from elevated blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. But mm-hmm. so yeah, definitely some side effects with these guys, and I think they have their place. Uh, but I still prefer obviously the metformin and then GLP ones. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? There's a oral solution for Valsartan. Prexartan is the brand name for it. Uh, so that's going to be approved for hypertension and congestive heart failure. So that's um, that's on the market now. It's actually pretty interesting because um, last month in the hospital, we had a patient who couldn't take anything by mouth um, and his peg tube was clogged and they mm. were trying to give him, well, I guess that would have to go in a peg tube, wouldn't it still? So not really any IV ACEs or ARBs, are there? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, yeah, it's still wouldn't solve that problem. solution, but... Hey, if you had the same patient and like he couldn't take anything by mouth but or going, couldn't take tablets, but his peg tube worked, then I guess this stick would it work. in there. Yeah, <laughs> that would work. So there you go. That's that's on the market now. Um, and a couple other random drugs. Let's, let's see. No. Speaking of the renin angiotensin system, there's Geopreza, which is the um, angiotensin two um, that they approve for to, to increase blood pressure. So normally when you hear about the RAS system, you're thinking decreasing blood pressure, but they're actually doing the opposite and using it in septic or other types of shock to kind of as a presser to increase. So that's pretty interesting. Yes, yes, yes. I forgot about that one. Um, also Lumify is the, uh, ophthalmic solution. It's the, it's bromonidine, but it's over the counter. So it's going to be used for, um, eye redness is what they're, actually have it labeled for but uh yeah it's over the counter now so that's that's going to be available that's uh one of the first one of those drugs that i've seen that's that's gone over the counter yeah so exciting stuff you wonder why it's uh difficult to keep up with all the new drugs they they pop them out all the time don't they yeah there's a lot of new ones so mm-hmm. we did and we didn't even cover all of them but that's no. that's the majority of them um we big ones the uh the, this website i like is drugs.com and you can just subscribe to uh, new drugs as far as they're, they have a news feed and then you can pick new drugs or drugs that have, uh, they're in the pipeline and, and they'll send you emails. That's one of the ways I keep up with it. Yeah. Cole, what do you, what do you use? Yeah, that's what I use. And um, they've also got, if you're interested or as interested in uh, trials and evidences, me and Mike, which you should be, um, <laughs> you can sign up for the FDA new drug trial snapshot and it doesn't send it to you like the day the drug is approved but kind of a follow-up in a couple of weeks, it'll send you a snapshot of the study or maybe some type of landmark study that followed a GLP-1 or some other type of medication, and you can just run through it um, quickly. And if you're interested, you can go to the full trial and read the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's a very good idea. I didn't think about that. Awesome. So that's the new drugs. Um, what do you say? You want to tackle this case? Sure, let's do it. 
So what do we got? Um, we wanted to do an outpatient case. This is a pretty simple one, something that you're going to see all the time if you're in a clinic doing primary care, uh, even if you're doing heart failure clinics, diabetes clinics, whatever. This is going to be pretty standard for, for patients um, in this elderly age group. So we've got LS. LS is a 76-year-old white male. He's coming to your clinic. He's a new patient for you, but he's doing a diabetes and um, heart failure follow-up. He just left his old primary care doc. So uh, he's got a past medical history of uh, congestive heart failure, HFRF, with an EF of 30%. He's got diabetes. He's got hypertension. And uh, he has a history of a CVA, and he actually has a little bit of um, left hemiparesis because of that, so a little bit of paralysis. Uh, so that's LS. He's taking a few meds. He's got Plavix 75, Pravastatin. He's on 80 milligrams, Carvedilol 12.5 twice a day. So he got the beta blocker. He's got Lisinopril, so he's got an ACE doing 40 milligrams, Lasix 40 milligrams, all those once a day. Uh, he's doing metformin extended release 500. He's only doing that once a day, so a pretty low dose. And uh, he's also taking glimepuride, we think. Uh, he didn't bring it in with him, but he it's on his claims history. So we got to do a little more digging about that. So glimepuride, one milligram once a day. Sounds good. Where do you want to start? So um, why don't we tackle his uh, diabetes first? Sounds good. So he is on, what did you say, metformin, mm -hmm. 500 milligrams? Mm-hmm. Just once a day? Just once a day. Also on glomepuride. So what's uh, what's the first thing you want to do? So I, it depends. Um, you know, his A1C was what, 7.4? Yes. So, you know, I, I, obviously at this at this age, you know, I don't know that I would really push his mm -hmm. A1C lower. Um, you know, if, if he was higher than that and he was in the eights, I would be a little bit more more comfortable pushing his a1c lower obviously the ideal uh, metformin dose is is a uh, thousand milligrams twice a day mm -hmm. um you know we we could consider that with him his, his egfr is, is 50 so he's still still okay mm -hmm. as far as being on metformin even though he's he's a little bit elderly but uh that's one of those things that you know if if i was going to increase the metformin it'd be more um hopefully to, to prevent some cardiovascular issues in the you know in the future right. and uh get a little bit of a legacy effect but yeah he is elderly and i agree um couple things to that one um i totally agree with the a1c goal with his heart failure being as significant as he is yeah you know i that, wouldn't go much, i wouldn't go much lower than that's that if, the primary right that's the primary issue with his a1c where it's at um, could we get him off glimepuride completely? And if we need more A1C control, can we just do the metformin? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I I'm not a fan of sulfonylurea unless the patient just has to. Mm -hmm. um, cost is an issue sometimes. Yeah, but. if if the cost is an issue, absolutely. You know, you got to do what you got to do. But if the person has insurance, if they have, you know, this gentleman, if he's got Medicare Part D, uh, I definitely would recommend using. If you needed something else, especially if you needed mealtime coverage. Instead of using glimepiride, I would definitely recommend doing like a GLP one right. instead. I'm just not. A, there's too much risk with uh, uh, hypoglycemia, mm -hmm. especially in elderly. And that's patients. probably it's the just, main thing is is hypoglycemia. Some people mentioned that eventually there's kind of a cap on the benefit that you can get from sulfonylureas, five, ten years, whatever. They say it kind of wears out the pancreas. But um, for this guy, yeah, take him off of glimepiride, and uh, we can see if we if we need to, we could always increase the metformin. 
and it's honestly just as cheap as as glimepiride uh, it's free at some pharmacies and it's on the four dollar list at most others so not really a concern there he is on the extended release which is a little bit more expensive but um generally tolerable so yeah and if, if we were going to increase it i would say just add a 500 milligram tablet at yeah. night um for a little bit and then if he tolerated that you know we could consider going up to uh two twice a day eventually but definitely just adding the one at night with his you know evening meal and seeing how he does on it sure yeah so as far as diabetes goes this guy's not too and too bad or as far as his a1c goes uh what do, how do you feel about a statin he's on private statin 80 so this one this one's can kind of go a couple different ways because because of his age you know he's he's over he's over that 75 kind of age cap where we have recommendations on statin use so we do have some data with the uh, prosper trial that they looked at pravastatin in patients that were uh, up to 82 years old um the issue with this gentleman though is he's actually had a stroke in the past so in that case, we actually have data post-stroke post with uh, atorvastatin 80 um, when we saw positive outcomes in that from the Sparkle trial. So this is kind of a, this is a hard one because based on his age, he still would have, he still would have, uh, you know, been accepted into the Sparkle trials. I don't believe they had an age cutoff in it. Mm-hmm. And you know, atorvastatin 80, he could probably tolerate and he may actually get some benefit. I, I think it really just kind of depends on what we think his life expectancy is, what we, how, you know, well he's doing, um, kind of all of that put together and looking at him as, you know, individually and not just saying, oh, in this case, every time we would start atorv 80. Uh, there's plenty of clinicians who would be more than happy with keeping him on the Prava. So, you know, I think that um, if I was going to switch him, I would be a Torva, and I would jump to the 80 milligrams yeah. because it'd be easier for me to drop to 40 than trying to start at 40 and then titrate up again. I've just found with, in my own personal experience, it's easier uh, to kind of cut the dose in half than it is to double the dose. Right. So there's a lot of placebo effect with, with statins, uh, statin intolerance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, I think the actual rates of intolerance in the studies are, are much lower. And you can do a lot of stuff if this is a off topic, but you can do a lot of stuff to um, to kind of remedy it. Some people will give a statin a couple of times a week if they're really having bad myalgias. Um, Pravastatin is one of the lowest risks. Um, and interestingly, rosuvastatin is actually pretty low risk, even though it's considered a high intensity. I think that's a common misconception is that the higher intensity it is, the more muscle pain you must have. Simvastatin is actually the worst for muscle pain. Um, and rosuva is one of the lowest. Um, I think Prava is probably lower than that. But um, So if they're having it with, with Lipitor, atorvastatin, can always try Crestor, rosuvastatin. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, you have to, if you think about the whether the statin is lipophilic or hydrophilic or hydrophilic statics um statins we would like pravastatin and rosuva we would think would have less penetration in the muscle and you know we wouldn't have to worry about that as much in theory and there is a, a meta-analysis out there that kind of shows that this does does seem to play out in practice as well so that's usually where i like just like cole said that's what i would think if if someone's having these muscle pains um and you've already lowered the dose that's not helping my next step would be to either switch to uh, Rasuva or Prava if they're on, you know, a Torva or Simva or something. I would switch to one of the other two or go every other day. Yeah. Yeah. And um, back to the dose, you might say, well, if you're that concerned about myalgias, which I'm not generally, 
um, mm-hmm. why not just start at a lower dose and creep up? And he talked about that a little bit, but there is some evidence to just going straight for the high intensity instead of the lower yeah. TNT trial compared mm-hmm. to Torva 80 versus Torva 10. It wasn't post-stroke. It was uh, patients with CAD and hyperlipidemia. And they did have an age cutoff of 75, which, of course, this guy's 76. He's right there. Um, but, you know, you might be able to lean on that a little bit if you to, to support just going straight for the 80. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, I, I I personally would like to see him do, especially if, you know, he's doing really well and in good shape and seems like he's really wanting to take control of his uh, disease states and, and he's doing well. I would probably say a tour of 80 would be fine and just kind of see how he goes. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things, whether or not you want to mess with it, what hit, what's his willingness to, to consider changing medications? Mm-hmm. So maybe yeah. case maybe, by case. Maybe he had issues in the past with mm-hmm. statins, who knows. Yeah. So. That's why I like I like doing these because I don't want, I, I never want to say blanket statements. Yeah. I, we, you'll always hear us say treat the patient specifically mm-hmm. and, and not actually just follow the general guideline of how right. you do things. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. And that doesn't mean, you know, ignore evidence completely if this person doesn't want to take something for, you know, not necessarily a valid reason. That's not, you know, necessarily a good reason to switch to something like they don't want to take uh, carvedilol and they have heart failure. So we're just going to do a tenolol because that's what they've had before for hypertension or something like that. Um <laughs> Anyways, yeah. speaking I, of that, and I think in that, you know, in that case, just to kind of add on to that, like I would actually explain the data and show them the data, even though people think that, you know, patients can't understand that, you know, put it in the terms that they can understand and explain, explain why you're doing things. And I think if someone, most people, if you can say that oh, I can reduce your chances of having heart attack or stroke or death, um, just by switching over to you know, this other medication, I, I think that you'd be hard pressed to find people who are like still unwilling to switch. But yeah, I, that's why I think trials and, and evidence is important, even when you're just speaking to a patient. And that's speaking to patients. But even if you're a, um, well, we'll say mid-level provider and you're, you want to make a recommendation to your physician or whoever you're, um, you're reporting to, or maybe they're asking you for your recommendation, you can always, if you can cite evidence, that's always very helpful. Yeah. Cite a trial and tell yeah. them why I recommend this. So, 100%. Yeah. So, we said beta blockers. So, mm-hmm. what's our uh, our evidence-based beta blockers? So, we got three in uh, Hefref. We got Carvedilol is one, Bisoprolol also, and Metoprolol, the succinate, so the long-acting version, which is Topril XL is the brand name. Um, so, not Metoprolol tartrate, which is... Um, I'm blanking on the brand name. Lopressor. Lopressor. Um, so metoprolol succinate is the, the one that was shown to reduce mortality mm-hmm. um, in heart failure specifically. And if you look at the, the trials that you know had the, the cardiovascular outcome data with those three beta blockers, you know, they, they always push the beta blocker of interest to, to their max to the max dose or as max that could be tolerated by the patient. So, you know, in this example, this patient's only at 12.5 milligrams, uh, assuming that he's not above 85 kilograms, you know, 25 milligrams twice a day would be the, the mm-hmm. max he could be on. So, you know, his ejection fraction, ejection fraction is still 30. So we may consider, 
Um, as long as we're checking his heart rate regularly and it's not going too low, mm-hmm. um, I would probably consider bumping him up to the 25 milligrams. Right. And what else would you want to look at, um, especially with carvedilol compared to the other two, to make sure it's okay before you increase it? So monitoring his blood pressure, because carvedilol is a alpha beta blocker, you're going to, in theory, get a little bit more blood pressure lowering than you would with bisoprolol or metoprolol succinate. So you'd want to make sure his blood, you're, you're monitoring his blood pressure, make sure it's not going too low. Um, but if you had, and you know, kind of the opposite of that, if you had a patient who you want to add a beta blocker to because of heart failure, but his blood pressure is a little bit low, then metoprolol succinate or bisoprolol would probably be a better option. So keep those in mind. And then um, you'll also hear an argument of, well, carvedilol has been proven better than metoprolol succinate. If you hear, you know, that's referring to the Comet trial. Uh, the issue with Comet was they compared carvedilol to metoprolol tartrate, and they only used uh, metoprolol tartrate uh, 50 milligrams twice mm-hmm. a day, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it wasn't a full dose. Yeah. Well, the the dose of metoprolol succinate that's been shown to be effective is 200 milligrams right. from uh, Merit HF. And so, Comet, re- realistically speaking, um, if you were to get a true comparison, you even though this isn't really based on evidence, you would need metoprolol uh, around 150 milligrams total daily dose of the tartrate to equal 200 milligrams of the extended release, the succinate. Um, reason for that is you need a higher concentration of the succinate because as uh, it's metabolized by 2D6, it's going to have longer to chew up the the drug and metabolize it. So you need a longer uh, a higher concentration to get through that first pass metabolism. Right. So it's roughly a one to 1. 1.5, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, comparison. Yeah. So, so I always think like 150 milligrams of tartrate equals 200 milligrams mm-hmm. of succinate. That's how I kind of think about it. And I've actually seen, there was an older cardiologist one time and he actually had someone on metoprolol tartrate 50 milligrams, but was dosing it three times a day. And, uh, I know we had talked about this and we were kind of, Con, like concerned as to why he was doing that but it's actually in theory kind of equivalent to the evidence-based mm-hmm. dose so yeah. it's kind of interesting because of the half-life is is not necessarily 12 hours mm-hmm. it's like six to eight or something like yeah. that um yeah interesting so the um the other thing is uh the lisinopril so mm-hmm. he's on lisinopril and that's maxed out which is good 40 milligrams mm-hmm. um atlas trial we saw that the maxing out the ace gives better benefit than keeping them in a lower dose. So that's mm-hmm. another one that we see oftentimes not pushed to where it can be as ACE inhibitors. Right. And that's one thing about heart failure is that we actually have not just goal medications we want people to be on, but goal doses we want to reach to see the most benefit because that's what's evidence-based. Not for mm-hmm. all the medications, but for, for a fair amount of them that you're going <laughs> to yeah. put people on. For sure. Um, what about Entresto? Yeah. This guy? Um, I think that that would be an option for him. So his uh, EF is 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tresto, we saw in the Paradigm HF trial, they compared that to a Nalapril. Uh, we saw mortality benefit compared to an ACE. Granted, it wasn't the full dose of an Nalapril, but um, the, the evidence is pretty compelling to say that it could be first line over an ACE or ARB in heart failure. The new guidelines are recommending that, um, but it's still relatively expensive. Price is coming down, mm-hmm. um, but that's definitely a hindrance to most people, I would think. Yeah. Um, the other thing to make sure if, if you do have a patient that 
is a candidate for Entresto, uh, which if if you're not, hopefully you're familiar with that at this point. But if you're not, it's it's a it's a fused molecule mm-hmm. of Secubitrol, which is a naprilysin inhibitor, and Valsartan, which is hopefully you're familiar with that. It's an ARB, mm-hmm. and uh, basically one of the higher risks that we have with this is is angioedema, and it's actually more so. Um, because of the secubitrol component, the naprilysin, uh, there's a little bit higher risk than even just with an ACE because we always think of angioedema with ACE inhibitors. But Entresto does have, have a risk of it. So one of the things that you have to do is if you are switching a patient from an ACE to Entresto, you have to have a 36-hour washout period. And, and this is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually dealt with this myself where a patient came in uh, to a the retail pharmacy and was getting the his prescription, or his, well, I guess he dropped off a prescription for his Entresto, and the, I was there doing MTM that day and explained kind of what the drug was because it had just been it had just been on the market for like a month at that point, and uh, at that time I, I told the pharmacist who was working to that was about to you know dispensing the medication to put a note on there because currently the patient had been taking an Alipril, told him to to uh, put a cap on a consult on there and explain that the patient needed to basically stop this this uh, ACE inhibitor for 36 hours before um, going on the Entresto. Well, like six days went by, and that, that pharmacist called me and said that the patient's uh, wife had come in, and he had been given samples at the office from the physician who wrote the, the prescription. And I don't know if it was on his take-home paperwork and he didn't read it or if the physician just didn't tell him or the nurse didn't tell him who it was, but uh, he was not informed of this 36-hour washout period and he took the these, an Alipril with the Entresto and had angioedema. Hmm. So now we run into a situation where one of the contraindications to Entresto is a past case of angioedema. Mm-hmm. So we potentially cost this guy medication that is very effective at reducing not only hospitalizations, but mortality because of a failure to consult. So that's mm-hmm. super, super important. That's a long-winded story, but super important that we are educating patients on that 36-hour washout period. Yeah, for sure. And patients to be indicated ultimately have to have tolerated, shown to have tolerated an ACE, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Typically, that's how they did it. That's how they set it up in the trial. Right, that's how they set it up. Um, and you mentioned it was a male, but the, the patients at highest risk for angioedema are actually African-American females. So that's who... You definitely want to want to look out for it for, but I mean, in any patient taking Entresto, you wanna you wanna make sure that that's addressed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, what else do we have for this patient? They're on daily Lasix mm-hmm. for just edema. Um, Is it gonna get mortality benefit from that? No, I mean not necessarily mortality benefit. He would he would you know more get symptom relief. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing to keep in mind too, and some of you may have seen this if if you're not familiar with it, but you may you may have run into this at some point. Um, Eventually, a lot of times you'll see patients get to a certain like dose of Lasix and it's just not effective anymore. Um, and there's something we can actually add on to Lasix that will work in kind of a synergistic way. Um, metolazone, which is a thiazide diuretic. Mm-hmm. And most thiazides work in the distal convoluted tubule of the kidney, but uh, metolazone actually has activity in the proximal convoluted tubule as well. And so you kind of shuttle some of those electrolytes down into the loop of Henle so the, the Lasix or whatever loop diuretic you're using works a little bit better. So in heart failure patients specifically, 
you will see uh, this combination of feros- usually it's furosemide along with uh, metolazone. Yeah, and it generally is very effective. And uh, yeah. I've seen you don't usually use it with every dose of Lasix. You don't usually use it every day. I've yeah. seen patients just use it once a week. Um, and they'll call it their booster, is what mm-hmm. they'll say. Um, but it can also be used three times a week, just depending on whatever the the nephrologist wants. Yeah, and you, I mean, you definitely have to have to be careful with it because you can bottom people yeah, out bottom with blood out. pressure and and you know dehydrate them and all that. So you definitely would have to be would be careful with it. But if you do see it, that's that is an option out there, and, and why they're why they're using it. Mm-hmm. So we got this guy on Cravatolol. We got him on an ACE. He's on Lasix. Is there anything else he needs or could, I guess, what would be the next step for, for heart failure? So, you know, this gentleman, he's, he's blood pressure is 155 over 95. So there's a couple of things we could do. If we were looking, you know, more on the, the heart failure side of things, we, we could, we could talk about spironolactone. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue with that is he is older you know, depending on spironolactone is really effective at lowering systolic blood pressure. I mean, you can think, you know, about 20 points systolic in some cases with spironolactone. Uh, so if you look at the rails trial for heart failure, um, we definitely have good data with that with spironolactone. And that's kind of where that 20 points blood pressure drop comes from. But, um, you know, that's something to be because of his age, we have to be cautious with them we're not dropping them too low and you know but that is something we could definitely consider um what else are you thinking um spironolactone is the the biggest one i'm thinking i don't think we would look into did drive aberdeen or anything with this guy no i'm not a fan of aberdeen unless they just i'm I'm not a fan of aberdeen (laughs) there's very few people that i think would be all that beneficial agreed um what about if we were going to look at as if we were going to target more of the hypertension side of things what would you do um, I mean, you could add on a diuretic or you could add on, um, calcium channel blocker potentially. Um, which diuretics would you do? Uh, like in Dapamide. Yeah, in Dapamide. Yeah, I agree with that Clothal. for sure. Or Clothaldone. Either one of those I would, I would like. Um, in Dapamide, we have, uh, evidence with, uh, the high vet trial, which was patients 80 to a hundred. Um, so this guy's actually almost, almost the age where he would qualify for that. Um, clothalidone, um, we have evidence with, uh, all hat and also with Shep. Um, and then in Dapamide, um, we have, uh, the pro- progress, I believe, which it might've been post-stroke actually. So, um, Cole will look at that real quick for me. I'm not, don't quote me on that yet, but I think it might be uh, post-stroke, which may even fit this guy even better. But, um, you know, outcome data with all, with both of those, Thiazides, so I agree with that for sure. It was post-stroke. Was it? Yeah. Yes, winner, winner. Awesome. What about, um, let's let's talk about his potassium. Yeah. So either way, regardless of which decision to... Right. I was going to say, if, if we're considering adding on spironolactone, he's already on an ACE, then first lab you're probably going to look at is his, his uh, potassium. So we actually did get one on this guy. So his is 4.2, so within normal limits. Um, and there is a cutoff, so if you, if you get that back... Um, for spironolactone, you want it below five, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and an ACE, if you're going to start an ACE, you want it below 5.6. Yeah. Uh, so that's what you're looking at there. And there's also, if we were to add on um, a diuretic, what would what would be concerning there? You mentioned the SHEP trial. Yeah, so like the, the SHEP trial was um, chlorothal- involved chlorothaladone and actually had a, had a uh, add-on of a tenolol, believe it or not. Um, but one of the things they noticed with the patients that received chlorothaladone was... <clears throat> that if 
the patient's potassium, this was done in a secondary analysis, but if the uh, patient's potassium was dropped dropped below 3.5, they actually lost all the uh, outcome date, like benefits of clothaldone. The mortality benefit was, was gone. And so there's going to be some people based on that that would actually aim for a, a potassium of four just to be on the safe side that you're not going too low. This guy's on Lasix. Uh, he's on now a thiazine diuretic. So you'd want to make sure that um, you are monitoring that because you don't want to have a guy on an evidence-based thiazine diuretic and then have it not be effective. Right. And a lot of times with pretty much anyone with any sort of heart condition, you could, if you're above four, you're, you're pretty much golden. Um, but of course, generally... 3.5 for for normal people would be the lower limits of normal yeah um so yeah that's his heart failure got anything else for that no um about uh aspirin for this guy um i don't think so no. he's already on plavix yeah. so what would adding on aspirin probably do nothing no no the, uh, match i believe mm-hmm. um match trial they added on aspirin with uh to patients who were already on clopidogrel and didn't see didn't see a, a difference. Didn't, so. see, didn't see a benefit. They actually saw an increased risk of, of bleeds, mm-hmm. um, potentially severe bleeds. So yeah, so but. I would not recommend an aspirin, even though he's had you know had an event. Even if even if he hadn't had an event, um, the sweet spot for aspirin now, uh, according to the U.S. Pre- um, Preventive Services Task Force, is uh, fifty to seventy is kind of the sweet spot. Really mm-hmm. fifty to sixty, and yeah. then if, as long as the benefit outweighs the risk from sixty to seventy as well. Um, but after 70, a lot of times the, the benefit doesn't outweigh the risk. So, uh, you know, you really have to take the aspirin for, is it 10 years? Yeah, so uh, they, they want you to have the, a 10-year life expectancy to really benefit from it because it takes that long to see the benefit. Yeah, and, you'd, you know, they, they can it can give you cardiovascular benefits, but it can also uh, prevent uh, colorectal cancer as well as another thing. So aspirin can definitely has its place, yeah. even in primary prevention, but I wouldn't recommend it in this guy. Yeah, main place we're really thinking dual antiplatelet is post-stenting, right? Mm-hmm. So not necessarily in this guy, just history of CVA. Yeah. Okay, anything else with, with him? That's pretty much it. Maybe immunizations? We could run through those really quick. Yeah, right? we can do that real quick. So let's just say hypothetically, since we didn't include this in the case, mm-hmm. he, uh, he has never had any immunization zero then um you know this this year it's, it's getting later in the year but you know i'd still try to give him a flu shot go ahead and give it um we have three really three flu shots that he could get or mm-hmm. i guess four technically if you want to count quad but uh we had the regular the standard flu shot uh, which several different brands that make that uh, and then we also have flu zone high dose and then flu odd is the other one so of those three which ones do you recommend i'm trying to remember we don't like fluod right yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of fluod and i think the reason for that is if you look at the head-to-head data it was only it was only non-inferior to the regular standard flu shot it didn't meet, meet the criteria for superiority and there's because it's got that uh, adjuvant in it which they use this squalene oil emo- emulsion um it actually can cause more localized reactions, things like that. And so I'm just not not a fan. Whereas uh, flu zone high dose has been compared. Um, the trial, I think, was done in 2014, but it doesn't have a cool name, so it's hard to remember. <laughs> but um, that one was compared to standard, and it actually was statistically different. Now, the number needed to treat was 218, so it's a little bit, you know, whether or not it's all that effective. Um you know, it depends on your point of view, I guess. They did do a cost-benefit analysis and showed that it it, it does actually cost-benefit uh, 
cost benefit positive if if you were to uh, get the flu zone over the standard, but the CDC still hasn't made a recommendation that I've seen. There you go. So it actually does matter which flu shot you get. How did yes. that do this year? I hear that uh, people weren't too happy with it. Yeah, the... I don't think it's covering very well yeah. this year. You should still get it, though. Still get it, yeah. Get why your not? flu shot. It's not going to hurt you. It's covered almost all the time. <laughs> it's almost. not going to hurt you despite what people may say on Facebook. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so it's flu shot. And then, if he's, again, if he's never had any vaccines, mm-hmm. um, Prevnar 13 would be first. Would be first, and then a year later uh, because of... Insurance. We have insurance. We have to get it billed. But you could uh, get it within, what, eight weeks? Yeah, technically you can't get it within eight weeks, but they've changed the guidelines now to say a full year just based on um, CMS and making yeah. sure that patients are having it covered. But yeah. So, yeah, then you'd get Pneumovax 23 a year later after mm-hmm. Prevnar. Uh, what else? What else? Well, uh, he could get uh, Zostavax, or better yet, uh, he could get Shingrix. How yes, about that? Yeah. Yes. So we don't have that yet. We're getting it next month. So. Yeah. Um, I would just wait. Yeah, I would hold off on it. Cause hold if, off. If they do get Zosivax, uh according to the data anyway, if you're going to follow that, you'd, you'd really have to wait about five years to give them the uh, the Shingrix, and it's so much more effective. Mm-hmm. This guy's getting you know approaching 80, and when you hit 80, you're looking at about an 18% efficacy with, with Zoster. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't and even sh- really consider Zostavax with this guy. And Shingrix is uh, it's two doses, right? It is two doses, yeah. yeah. So, you know, this two doses, especially if it's, it's really pretty cool. It's a little bit more expensive, but pretty comparable in cost. Yeah, I price. think it's worth it. I had a guy 100%. Come, come in yesterday with, with shingles and just hearing about it again. It's terrible. Yeah. So. I would definitely, uh, any, any family member of mine would recommend Shingrix over, over Zoster. Plus mm-hmm. it's a killed vaccine. So, yeah. um, no more um, of that live stuff. Yes. Cool. But also, uh, um, use a T-DAP. Yeah, if he hasn't had uh, tetanus Ever. in a while, then um, or Tdap a or, or a tetanus booster at mm-hmm. least. And, um, it depends on if he's checking. He's not really injecting insulin, yeah. so uh, his kidney function is okay. But if he was looking at like his kidney function was declining, and he was looking at hemodialysis, we could consider uh, Hep B vaccine series if he hadn't had that. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, it kind of just you'd have to weigh his life expectancy and everything yeah. else, and with with what we were going to vaccinate him with. And if he's even willing to get them in the first place, right? But yeah, that's uh, that's the first case. That's case number one. It's case numero uno. Numero uno. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll gather some some feedback from some of you and figure out whether or not you like sure. that or not. Yeah, let us know if you thought we were wrong. If you treat him different, tell yeah, us. I would yeah. actually really like that too because I'd like to get more conversations going. I'm uh, neither one of us are infallible by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> so I'm actually uh, wrong a lot. So, <laughs> no. Um, Mike's the data king, though. Nah, I don't know about Throwing that. Them all out I just there. repeat what other smart people have actually <laughs> said. But uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I would really, really encourage you guys to give us some feedback and leave comments if you prefer different strategies and, and kind of get the conversation going. Yeah, and if you want to break down any of those specific um, trials, we can potentially provide that. Also, check out that um, coreconsultrx.com slash podcast. We're going to post pretty much any trial we talked about, and maybe if we found a good summary, we'll post that on there too with the podcast. Um, hyperlinks, just click on them, and you can learn more. So check that out. Yeah, that's that's a good feature. I actually didn't even realize Cole was doing that until just recently. And I went, on my, I went on the, the website and I was like, oh, wow, this is a great idea. <laughs> Wish I would have had this. But uh, yeah, so that's that's really helpful. But yeah, that's uh, that's about it. So make sure you give us a uh, follow or a like on all the major social media platforms. And uh, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you prefer the video side of things, definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel. And I'm always interested to hear what uh, 
kind of feedback and, and also ideas that you guys have. Uh, or if you're interested in being like a guest, if you think you yeah. have a really interesting uh, job or history or whatever it may be, um, reach out to one of us. Or and, even if you're not that interesting. Yeah, because we'll we're not that interesting and no. we're still doing it. Yeah, we'll no. make it interesting. At least they haven't told us we can yet. <laughs> so. But yeah, definitely reach out to us, email um, or any of the social media platforms. Um, we can You can reach us at that and then let us know. And yeah, until then, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening.